so Susan is a professor in family mental health with a particular interest in mindfulness at the University of Amsterdam. She is a psychotherapist and mindfulness trainer, specifically interested in mindfulness for families living with ADHD, attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder, or autism. Uh, Susan loves to research, to write, to teach, uh, to meditate, and to think. Um, she gives lectures, workshops, trainings, teacher trainings, and retreats on the role of attention and mindfulness in the context of child development uh, and parenting, family and partner relations, and psychopathology. Uh, Susan provides training and teacher training in mindful parenting and mindfulness for children through the My Mind program, uh, as well as supervision. She writes scientific papers and books about these topics. Uh, she's a mother of three adult children and lives in Amsterdam. So thank you so much for joining us today, Susan. Over to you. Thank you very much, Oli, for this beautiful introduction. And it's a real honor for me to be here. I'm very grateful for the Oxford Mindfulness Foundations to organize these events and to think about me. Let's start with a brief practice. So find a comfortable position, whether you're sitting, lying or standing, any position is good. And when I ring the bell, we are all a bit conditioned to close our eyes, but the invitation is to just keep your eyes open. And so take a moment to look at the screen. Perhaps put your screen on gallery so that you can just see all the people gathered here. I also now have a chance to look at everybody. Just welcoming all the people here and appreciating also the technology that keeps us here connected. And then look around a moment to the room you're in, the ceiling, the floor, the walls, the objects it holds, maybe a very familiar room or a bit less familiar. And just appreciating this room for keeping you warm, protected, dry and safe. And then if you want, you can close your eyes or let them rest on a point before you, but not a screen. And take a moment to feel what you're sitting on, cushion chair, or maybe you're lying or standing. 
So whatever is supporting you. And appreciating the qualities of the chair cushion or what is supporting your position at the moment. And then noticing the body here in whatever position it is. Aware of the breathing. The heart beating, perhaps the gut working on some food. And just appreciating this complex machinery of the body keeping us alive. And now, opening your ears, aware of the sounds around you. The sounds from your room, perhaps from outside, apartment building, family members perhaps, traffic, animals. See how far your ears can reach. And just appreciating all these sounds as the concert of your life. And now bringing the attention inside. To thoughts, emotions physical sensations. And just asking yourself, how am I feeling right here, right now? What is my inner weather? Whatever it is that you're noticing, whether you're tired or stressed or hungry, or irritated, whatever is going on inside, say to yourself, it's okay. Let me feel it. Let me be with it. So just like the external weather, the internal weather comes and goes. 
And then wiggling with the toes, the feet, the hands. And listening to the sound of the bell. Welcome back. And so after this short practice, I would like to share with you uh, some of my thoughts and experience on mindfulness in the area of autism and ADHD. And I called the talk of today living mindfully with ADHD or autism. So I want to talk about um, how mindfulness can help for people who have symptoms of ADHD or autism themselves or who live with people who have uh, ADHD or autism, partners, children, parents, colleagues, and also for those who work with people um, with ADHD or autism. And so I start with a citation of Samuel, the world inside and beyond ourselves is far more complex, more intense, more powerful, more terrifying than we human beings can encompass in our everyday experience. The neurotypical everyday citizen of the human mode of existence who managed to get along with reasonable adequacy in this terrifying universe, do so by a drastic process of cutting down and limiting of experience to a level which our limited perceptions and capacities can encompass. So starting with uh, a few definitions. So first, what are neurodevelopmental disorders as ADHD and autism uh, belong to, according to this big book, which is called the DSM-5, in which all the mental disorders are listed. So neurodevelopmental disorders uh, affect the development of the nerve system um, from, uh, yeah, from the beginning of our existence leading to abnormal brain function and affecting emotion, attention, learning ability, memory and self-control. So they're usually uh, lifelong and the two most known uh, uh, ones where the, the talk of today will be about are called ADHD and autism. But next to that we have communication, speech and language disorders motor and tic disorders, intellectual impairment, and learning disorders such as dyslexia, all belonging to this group of what we call neurodevelopmental disorders. And so to start with ADHD, these are the criteria, we won't go through all of them, but basically um, ADHD is a persistent pattern of inattention and or hyperactivity or impulsivity 
that importantly interferes with our functioning and development and is characterized by um, six or from the age of 70 years on uh, five of the following symptoms on the left of inattention. For example, difficulty sustaining attention in tasks or play. Uh, doesn't seem to listen when spoken to directly. On the left and on the right, things around hyperactivity and impulsivity, like moves his or her, her hands or feet, restlessness or turns in his or her seat. And as you can see, some of these uh, descriptions are basically directed towards children, but um, the DSM-5 now also recognize that these problems don't uh, stop by themselves when we are 18 years of age. So now the criteria have been a little bit adapted so that also adults can recognize themselves in it. For example, this criterion runs about or climbs on everything in situations that are inappropriate. Typically, adults with ADHD don't do that anymore. And then it's limited to subjective feelings of restlessness. So, and then let's look at the criteria for autism. Here it's about difficulties or differences from what is typical in social communication and restricted repetitive uh, or sensory behavior or interest. And again, a few examples of criteria. Uh, rarely uses language to communicate with other people. Uh, rarely engages in imaginative play on the left. Um, and on the right, so the left is about social and on the right is uh, about repetitive behavior, uh, like speaking in a repetitive uh, way or having very um, narrow and or intense interests. So if you look at this criteria of both these disorders, they look very uh, different. However, uh, they do have a lot in common. So starting with how often we see ADHD and autism, it has become uh, uh, very common. The prevalence of ADHD and autism in children at the moment in the United States is estimated to be 18%. That's really high and it's still increasing. Um, if we look at the prevalence, so how often we see ADHD and autism in adults, that's also increasing, which may be uh, predominantly due to a better recognition in adult age because of the DSM-5 criteria being more adapted to adults and also a better recognition in uh, women as they may express it in different ways than men. Uh, you see the disorder typically more in men than in women. And very interesting, the comorbidity. So the going together of ADHD and autism is very high. So people on the autism spectrum, often 50 to 70% also meet criteria for ADHD. So that already um, shows that they are not as different as they look like. So do we actually need a separate diagnosis? Because um, if you look at these uh, conditions, both ADHD and autism are primarily caused by genetic factors. So if somebody in the family has it, the, the chances are greater 
that you or your children may get it too. Um, uh, and they are caused by prenatal or birth uh, factors. So things that have happened in the womb, things that happened during the birthing process. Uh, uh, and that's why they used to be called all minimum brain dysfunction, MBD, because something is a bit different in the brain because of uh, genetic factors and or uh, development or early development and birthing factors. Um, for example, if a baby is born too early, premature this, or dismature, then the frontal brain hasn't developed fully. And as a result, there may be uh, problems in attention that may look like ADHD or autism. So the overlap between ADHD and autism is big. There are problems in attention. There are hyper and hyposensitivities, for example, hypersensitivity for clothing or for sounds, or hyposensitivity, like not very sensitive for a feeling of thirst or hunger, um, which is also related to interception. So the, the feeling of when we need to eat, when we need to sleep, may be less developed. The time perception is typically less, so a less sense of like now I'm feeling like, oh, how long am I talking around 10 minutes? That sense of time perception may be less. Um, there are problems in, typically in information processing in both conditions, in executive functioning. I talk a little bit more later about what it is in social functioning. And there may be more hyperactivity and impulsivity in both these conditions. However, if you look at the differences, then they typically have a different way of coping. Like children with ADHD, you find them often being all over the place. So they may be overwhelmed by a lot of stimuli. And then as a result, they may be all over the place and focus from one thing on another, like going from a butterfly from one thing to the next. Whereas children with autism, Typically, their way of coping when the world has become too overwhelming is to withdraw more and focus on one thing. And that's why they may look very different uh, while they are not that different. So the next question is, why do ADHD and autism increase? Um, one of the reasons is that we better recognize these conditions nowadays and also there is an overdiagnosis of them. For example, movies like TikToks may uh, present the disorders in such a uh, simple way that many of us will recognize ourselves in them and may think we have it, uh, although we just have a few symptoms of the conditions. And overdiagnosis can also result, for example, from an emphasis on good performance on school, uh, a pressure to use medication, etc. But next to that, um, as the citation in the beginning, our world has become so complex, our, the speed has become so fast, there was so much pressure, there can be a bombardment of stimuli, certainly in our urban environments nowadays, and our attention span keeps decreasing and decreasing. And so, that may also result in more uh, people with ADHD and autism. For example, some teachers says it looks as if the whole class has ADHD. We've all become very busy. 
and because of the great complexity of, of our world, if you think only about the computer and what we do with it, we may need more people who have this very focused brains who are able to focus on very complex material, which typically, for example, people with autism may be very good at. Then there are aspects like the environmental aspects, like the food we eat, environmental pollution, um, getting children at a later age, uh, more medical interventions during birth can all contribute to uh, ADHD and autism because they are multi-causal. Uh, for example, uh, there's research showing that um, uh, children with cesarean that come to the world with a cesarean have a higher risk of autism or ADHD. And uh, we know that the number of children who come uh, to the world with a cesarean is uh, growing very fast. So that may explain an increase. And then there are things like what is called our narcissistic society. Uh, British psychiatrist Timimi uh, mentioned that very beautifully, which is that our society that focus so much on autonomy, success, individual autonomy, success, appearance and achievement of material goals rather than a sense of community and relationships that that somehow seems to increase all forms of problems like depression anxiety but also also things like adhd so are adhd and autism are they actually disorders or are they more personality traits or ways of being in the world the Maori uh, indigenous population of New Zealand, their view of autism is, and I find it very beautiful, in your own time and space. So they see people with autism as gifted in terms of, for example, people with autism are very honest, pure, they are very good in hyper focus, very innovative, strong motivation, energy, excelling in sports, art, science or politics. And the same is true for ADHD. So it's a strength as well. And we see nowadays uh, a beautiful forming of communities of neurodivergence, as people with autism and ADHD tend to call themselves, and uh, finding their own communities, finding similar interests, finding their own norms and values, because our society is kind of uh, designed for, eight, for the 80% uh, neurotypicals and not so much for the 20% neurodivergence. So a few definitions. Uh, I already talked about executive functions. Executive functions is a set of cognitive processes like attention control, uh, control over our impulses, cognitive flexibility, planning, problem solving, all needed for the control of our behavior. And central in executive functions are, is our sense of inhibitory control, our ability to control our attention, our behavior, our thoughts and our emotions, and to override a strong impulse. I will give an example. For example, a child is playing piano, having piano, piano lessons by an individual teacher at home, and the doorbell rings. Every child will, will have the impulse to run to the door and open the door. 
but if the child knows that the mother is home to open the door, they may be able to inhibit that impulse and to continue the piano lessons. And for a child with ADHD, that type of control may be more difficult. So another um, attention theory that may be helpful to look at ADHD and autism is we have three sets of attention. First, the alerting, which is our ability to achieve and maintain a state of high sensitivity towards incoming stimuli. For example, I see a little flickering of my computer, so I have a high sensitivity whether my computer will not break down in the middle of this keynote. So that's our alerting system. We need it in order to stay safe. Then we have an orienting system that helps us to select from information from different sensory inputs. For example, I hear my daughter down playing computer games with her friends and I, as best as I can, try to not select that information and select other information that is now important for me. And then we have our executive network that helps us to monitor and solve conflicts between thoughts, feelings and responses. So, for example, if now I hear my daughter making too much noise, I have to solve the conflict in myself between going down and ask her to be quiet or deciding to stay here to focus on what needs to be done here. So that's a very important uh, attention network too. And in people with autism and ADHD, on all three of these areas, there may be differences. The good news here is that mindfulness training, any mindfulness training targets all these three networks. So, um, in mindfulness, we cultivate a wide open alertness, as we did in this little practice in the beginning. We were, um, uh, um, I'm a bit confused because I see a drawing on my, um, so I'm, I had to have a moment of distraction, which is exactly what I'm talking about. So alerting is cultivating a wide open attention to whatever is going on inside us and outside us. Then orienting is we practice uh, in mindfulness to focus on certain targets like the breath, the body. And then we also practice executive functions in mindfulness by cultivating awareness to for our distractors, for example, thoughts that are, distract us from our meditation or external sounds that distract us from our meditation, noting the impulse to follow those distractors and then return the attention to the focus. And so a last model that I want to talk about when we talk about ADHD and autism and actually any mental condition is the BOAM model. You, if you want to hear more, learn more about it, you can go to the BOAM website of Damiette Tryons or read the paper uh, we published about it, but I'll shortly explain it to you and then we pause a moment for questions. So here, so we can see ourselves are functioning as a tree and on the bottom of the tree are the basic needs in, our, in, the, in the soul 
that we all need to function, the need of connectedness, the need of food, the need of structure and predictability, the need for some positive attention and the need to be protected. And only when those needs are fulfilled, we can grow and do this more complex task that we need to do in life, like ordering our physical, con ordering the information that comes to us, physical concrete information and social emotional information. And only when we are able to that, we can grow further and become autonomous beings. We can learn to self-regulate ourselves. And only when we've managed that, we can come to the highest part where the tree will give fruit, where we can fulfill meaning in life. And, and when we're out the, the self-focus really into, um, into uh, serving others. However, what happens when people have um, uh, suffer from autism and ADHD, like children, they, uh, their need for structure and predictability um, will not be easily fulfilled because they have a lesser tendency to see the structure of the world around them. They may feel much easier overwhelmed. As a result, they cannot climb up. And we, when we ask them here to function autonomous on school, they may not be able to do that because here they haven't seen the, uh, the structure of what is expected from them. So this BOA model really helps us to look about the, at the basic need that all of us need in order to fulfill the, our tasks in life. For example, when I wake up in the morning and I can't find my agenda and I don't know what task I have for the day, my need for structure is not fulfilled. And as a result, I cannot function here. So then let's pause a moment before we go to the question of how mindfulness can help us live with ADHD and autism. So yeah, thanks, Susan. There's a couple of questions in the chat. Um, that's okay. So one about identification and diagnosis, uh, which is from Karen. Could you speak to people with trauma symptoms and or sleep deprivation being misdiagnosed with ADHD or autism? Yeah, that definitely happens. Early trauma like, um, there's a beautiful British study done on orphan children in um, Romania. So very early trauma when children are simply neglected in their basic emotional needs and their need for food um, can indeed lead in their development, can cause the kind of neurological difficulties that can lead to things like autism and ADHD. Uh, but indeed, there can also be uh, misdiagnosis of, uh, uh, for example, sleep problems are the most important predictor of ADHD symptoms longitudinally when we look at child development. So indeed, if children have sleep problems, uh, better first treat the sleep problems because as we've seen in the Bauer model, sleep is a basic need that needs to be fulfilled in order to grow. And I know for myself, if I had ever had a bad night, I surely have ADHD-like uh, symptoms during 
the day. So yes, that can be a misdiagnosis. And also uh, trauma can be misdiagnosed as autism or ADHD. On the other hand, it may also be if you have a predisposition of autism, for example, uh, you may be pestered more on school. And as a result, you may be confronted with trauma, which will make your symptoms more severe. But the trauma is, is coming on top of the diagnosis. So we always have to look very fine-tuned at the longitudinal development of different problems. Yeah. And trauma is always important to treat whatever people's other conditions are. Any Thank more you. questions? Thank you. Yeah, there's another question from uh, Maria, which uh, you've already touched on, uh, but perhaps is anything else that you like to elaborate on. So what, what are some of the possible prenatal causes? Yes, yeah, so there is, um, for example, if, if the brain, the frontal brain is the last part that develops in, uh, in the womb. And if the frontal brain is not fully developed because the child needed to be born, born premature for whatever reason, that may lead to symptoms uh, like more ADHD-like symptoms. Whether that develops to full ADHD condition or not is really all these problems, all these conditions are multi-multi-causal and it really depends on the rest of the development because a lot can be learned uh, in the further development. But so um, born premature, dismature can, um, can cause, uh, can be part of the cause of um, such a condition. Yeah, and there, there's also a lot of study on alcohol, drug, um, smoking. But the problem with all those studies, we never know what comes first. For example, if a mother has ADHD and as a result has different behaviors in the pregnancy, that may result in a child with a certain condition. And then we don't know whether it's the genetics of the mom or the, what the child has gone through in the, in the womb. Yeah. So it's always multi-causal but um, definitely prenatal factors uh, 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 have their contribution. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, there's another couple of questions in the chat, one from Margaret. Uh, the problems of ADHD in adults are missed. Uh, why is this? They seem to be missed, and why is that? Because in the past, in the D this big DSM book, in the past, these conditions were called autism and ADHD were called childhood conditions because they started in childhood as almost all mental problems ch start in childhood like anxiety but because these problems were called childhood onset conditions we forgot to look at them in adults more or less um, and nowadays there's more insight in how they continue to um, express themselves in adulthood, but sometimes with different symptoms. So given the time, perhaps it's good to now continue with the rest of the talk and see how many of those questions we can uh, answer at the end. So the question, how can mindfulness help to live with ADHD or autism? First, the awareness of our basic need for food, sleep, connectedness and predictability and structure is already important. So, for example, if a child with ADHD has a 
lesser sensitivity of their um, need for food and um, drinks. Then, for example, now I notice I'm a bit thirsty. So this, if you have a lesser awareness of that, mindfulness can help you to enhance that awareness, to enhance the awareness of, oh, now I'm really tired. So this would be a good moment to go to sleep. If you don't have this natural melatonin signal like, oh, I need to sleep now. And so awareness of our basic needs can already help uh, with these conditions and mindfulness helps us to become aware. Then our hypo and hypersensitivity. For example, if we know from of ourselves that we are hypersensitive to sounds as many children with autism, for example, report, then in meditation, we can learn to really open our ears to all sounds, sounds from far, sounds from close, loud sounds, um, soft sounds, see how the body reacts, see how we get stressed from certain sounds and just welcoming that all, uh, experiencing that in the body and mind rather than pushing it away. So when we can welcome our hypersensitivities or and also the hyposensitivities, um, it can become less of a problem or we can mindfully decide to, for example, wear earplugs at moments or not go to things with too loud sounds. But it's really the awareness that helps us to take care of ourselves. Then working with internal and external distractors when we meditate, of course, all of us, we are um, distracted by sounds we hear by thoughts that come up by feelings of pain or whatever feelings arise um, and uh, this is also true for people on the autism spectrum and on adhd and by becoming aware of whatever distracts them internally or externally and how because for example adhd it's not so much the being distracted but forgetting to afterwards return to our original focus. And so by practicing in mindfulness to become aware of all those internal and external distractors that we all have, and then uh, becoming aware and then returning, practicing to return the focus to what we intended to focus on, like our breath or our body, we can learn uh, to practice better uh, coping with those distractors and better returning. Then the impulsivity, um, all of us, whether we're on the autism spectrum, ADHD or not, uh, can use mindfulness to deal with our impulsivity. So when we feel a desire coming up, for example, I now want to have a glass of wine, or I'm very irritated with my daughter making so much sound, I want to run down and tell her to shut up. So we become aware of this impulses in ourselves and through mindfulness we can look at the impulse without acting upon it immediately and we can look at where the impulse comes from because often it comes from stress and that gets us into a fight reaction like running down to shout at my daughter or a flight reaction like having a glass of wine to calm my arousal system and so once we become aware of where this of our impulsivity and where it comes from, 
we can take better care of ourselves. So we can use um, mindfulness when overwhelmed. So any moment where someone with autism or ADHD or just any person has a, uh, is overwhelmed by the massive stimuli of this world, it's a good idea to simply have a little breathing space as we all practice regularly if we do mindfulness and it's a real helpful way when overwhelmed. And then mindfulness in general will reduce our stress. And because ADHD and autism symptoms become stronger under, under stress, the mindfulness will help. So, and mindfulness can also help with interpersonal stress regulation because our self-regulation, the regulation of our attention, arousal, our emotion, our behavior is primarily a re relational thing that starts in infancy. Every parent learns his children to regulate. And how do we do that? We do that through a process of synchrony. So when my heartbeat is going up because I'm angry, the heartbeat of one of my family members may go up too. So that's a synchrony process. The beautiful thing about that is that we can co-regulate. So when I can manage to lower my own heart rate and calm my own stress or anger, um, chances are that my partners or children uh, will be able to do the same. So across the lifespan, it starts from babyhood, actually it starts in the womb and it goes on through our whole lifespan. Uh, Co-regulation is an interactive uh, process of regulating support in caring relationships. So this brings us to the topic of how come can mindfulness help to live with a child, a partner or parent with ADHD or autism. So important through mindfulness, we can become aware of our own needs and others' needs because parents, for example, of a child with severe autism may be so much aware of the needs of the child that they may forget about their own needs. So awareness of both the needs of ourselves and other people. And then always the first step is taking care of our own stress and needs, because if we get stressed because of the stress of our child or partner, or whoever we take care of, if we don't first take care of our own stress, we may get into overreaction. We may become too overprotective or we may become too angry. And that won't help uh, our child partner, whoever we're taking care of, to develop. So taking care of our own stress and needs is always the first step. And the last thing is to accept what cannot be changed. So if you live with a person with ADHD or autism, uh, it's important to mourn about the fact what you cannot do together. The life you may have envisioned that you won't have, you will have another very interesting life but not the life you have envisioned. And it's important to accept and mourn about that. And then there are issues like shame. Many parents, for example, and also partners will feel shame about uh, their loved ones and their behavior. 
And when we feel ashamed, we tend to isolate, withdraw, where actually it's important to connect, to, to be compassionate with ourselves, to connect to others, perhaps to others who are in similar situations. And the same is true with guilt. We may feel a lot of guilt, for example, whether it's our fault that our loved one has this condition or the guilt of that we're able to do 100 things a day and they are only able to do two things a day. And again, that guilt won't help us to take, to take best care of them and ourselves. So we have to acknowledge that we're all different and that we all have to carry our own uh, problems and our own challenges. So it's an acceptance is an active process of allowing and not automatically responding to what we see in front of us. So very briefly, and this I will address further in the workshop to come, what's new in mindfulness programs for ADHD and autism, the practices are shorter, there's more concrete language, less talking, more psychoeducation, more visuals, more predictability and structure, more yoga and other movement. There is more focus on internal and external distractors, on impulsivity and on the narrow versus wide focus of attention. And the inquiry is more takes place in a more structured way. So very briefly, we've done a lot of research on mindfulness for youth with ADHD or autism and their spectrum. And we find that it improves the attention problems and psychopathology pathology, both in the children and their parents. And also it reduces parents' stress and parents' overreactivity. Meta-analytic findings, so these are larger findings over numbers of studies, show indeed that mindfulness is effective uh, for these groups and it's more effective for children with ADHD uh, and autism when their parents are included too. There is also now quite a bit of research on mindfulness for adults with ADHD or autism. In ADHD, the research is already really in its adult stages showing that mindfulness is indeed effective on inattention and hyperactivity and impulsivity in adults with ADHD. And in adults with autism, the mindfulness research shows promising results on autism spectrum symptoms, quality of life, anxiety, and depression, but more research needs to be done there. So the last thing I want to say, and then I give it over to Ali for questions, is um, very important, and these two uh, signals of um, uh, ADHD as butterfly and um, uh, autism as uh, a kind of endless, uh, endless renewing as infinity, infinite possibilities, is that um, uh, most important is to adapt the environment rather than adapting the person. So whatever mindfulness uh, we're going to give uh, people with ADHD and um, autism, most important is to see what adaptations in the environment are needed in order for them to live their most fulfilling lives. And I end with um, 
oh this image is somehow not visible but you can go to my website for more information and the workshop uh, to come is on uh, the website of the Oxford Mindfulness Center. Thank you. Thank you so much, Susan. Uh, very rich, very fascinating. Um, there's a, a two or three questions, I believe, in the chat um, to come back to. So one of them from Sammy <clears throat> uh, on the excuse me, on the BOAM model um, and Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, Sammy comments that they appear to be found in the same context. They seem yes, to be related. Yes. Is that right? And yes, they're very related. Yeah. Hmm. Yes. So if you go to the BOAM website, you will see um, uh, very soon that some of the English pictures are already there. So it's a whole visual model, but it's very inspired by... Um, uh, the pyramid of Maslow and actually everybody is a pyramid so the child is a pyramid or a bone um, the father is a pyramid the mother is a pyramid and for all of us the same is true that if our basic needs are not fulfilled we cannot climb up to pyramid and we will have a meltdown to go back to the basics to be fulfilled yeah thank you um uh, question from marisa I hope I pronounced your name well there, uh, whose husband has just been diagnosed aged 50. Um, and Maurice is wondering, this is kind of more on the history of the diagnosis and uh, how it's evolved, but how could they not know 50 years ago that he had a condition? You know, were there yes, not other signs question. or symptoms? Yes, it's a very good uh, question. I think uh, we've just evolved in our thinking and understanding of these conditions um, and also the world has changed so that things that were very um, easy to deal with 50 years ago may be uh, more challenging nowadays for example if you are on the autism spectrum and you live in a farm with a very predictable life taking care of animals i think you will hardly have difficulties with your uh, condition but if you live in a very busy city where everything is different every single day it may be much harder because there are much more changes to adapt to and of course there are mild forms that come out only at a certain age and one thing that i forgot to mention uh, executive functions that are the the, the basics in ADHD and autism that go different, they also change with age, they change with hormonal changes, they change with physical conditions, they change any with sleep, food, um, sports. So there are many ways uh, in which our executive functions go up and down in our lives. If we're in a burnout, our executive functions will be low. If we're in the menopause, I know for myself, my executive functions were were much less than they are now now that i'm grown out of it so there may be changes in your life uh, so that at one point you may have a diagnosis and at other point the symptoms are so mild that you won't meet the criteria of a condition any longer right 
lovely thank you and another question from sammy um which again you've already touched on how did you encourage the kids in your mindfulness classes um for autistic and adhd uh, children to remain mindful during the session yeah so in some ways they are more much more mindful than we are kids in general and kids with adhd and autism particularly because they can be very much in the moment so that quality they may embody in a in a very good way but then the other quality if you're mindfully going from a to b to c to z and actually the goal is to focus on a then we encourage them to become mindful of the fact that they go from a to b to c to z and um, stimulate them to bring the attention then back to a and first give themselves a compliment that they've seen the mind wandering as all minds do so it's it's a lot about um uh, making them aware and a lot about funny games i don't have time to show the, the videos but we do, do lots of funny games where for example half of the children are meditating and the other half are doing anything they can to distract them so sounds um blowing wind uh saying funny things uh dancing anything even smells anything to distract them and so the children who are meditating then have to practice to continue focusing on the breath, noticing the distractions, noticing the effects in the body and coming back to intended focus. And so that type of games on practicing focus are really very helpful for them. It makes it very concrete what we're doing. That's great. Thank you. I think we might have time for one more question. We're running out of time. So apologies if we uh, don't reach uh, your question in the chat. But Susie uh, asks uh, whether you've done any research into ADHD, autism and comorbidities such as bipolar, OCD, and whether there might be different ways in which mindfulness can help. For yeah, that's those a good point. There are, there are lots of comorbidities in people with autism and ODHD, anxiety, depression, uh, indeed also OCD, bipolar. So there are lots of comorbidities. So actually all the research we're doing now, for example, in autism, a lot of the research is primarily on the comorbid conditions. So as for many people with autism, their most important problem, if you ask them, is stress always stress. So we first look at how mindfulness helps them to feel less stressed or less anxious or less sad. So there is a lot of research on, as we know that mindfulness helps for anxiety and depression. It also helps for people with uh, uh, who are on the spectrum and who have comorbid anxiety and depression. So we never know when we practice mindfulness uh, with them, whether we're actually treating the anxiety or depression are treating their autis autism itself. But as long as it helps, we're going in the right uh, direction with them. Yeah, but a lot more research needs to be done in these because it's a really beginning area. So uh, I welcome anybody who's doing a good study on this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you so much. Uh, again, really stimulating stuff. Um, we're coming towards the end of the time we have. So uh, if you'd like to explore the, this topic in more detail, just want to remind you about the workshop that Susan will be leading in a couple of weeks. 
this is called Mindfulness for Adults with Autism or ADHD, What's New? Um, and it will take place over two sessions on Wednesday, the 18th of October at 6 to 9 p.m. UK time uh, and on Wednesday, 25th of October at 6 to 9 p.m. UK time. 